Our mission, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. So if anybody asks you, hey, what's that, that church about? Well, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. What do you do there on Sunday? We're learning about helping people find and follow Jesus. That's what we want to do. We want people to come to know Jesus as our Savior and Lord and live their life for him. So we're going to continue in our series through the New Testament book of Acts. And we've been calling this series the Action of the Church. So if you would open your Bibles, it's helpful to have a Bible open in front of you because we're going to refer to this text. We're going to be in Acts 21 beginning in verse 14 and go all the way to the end of Acts 22. And I'm calling this sermon a powerful testimony. So we have been in the book of Acts since the beginning of this year. And we've been walking line by line, verse by verse, seeing everything that God is doing to to build his church. And so today we're in the 21st chapter of that book. And at this point, you know, God is, uh, the Holy Spirit's inspiring Luke to capture everything that is God's doing through a man by the name of the Apostle Paul at this point. And Paul is about to conclude his third missionary journey He's been traveling all over the known world. He's been preaching the gospel and planting churches in some of the largest cities in the world. You see, what Paul's approach usually is, is he walks into a city that has never heard the name of Jesus, and and he preaches the gospel. And one of two things usually happens. Either a fight breaks out and Paul gets beat up, or people believe. And a church is planted. Well, Paul has just left these pastors in Ephesus. He's been with these men for three years, and he's been training them up, and he just gave them a a farewell speech to not stop preaching the gospel. Don't stop telling people the good news, the good news how there's forgiveness of sins through what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, and there's new life that is given to us because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. Well, He just left them, and I'm sure it was very emotional, in tears, and now Paul is heading to Jerusalem. And think about it. Paul has been in some pretty tough cities, spiritually speaking. I mean, he's been to Athens and Corinth and Troas and Derbe and Lystra and Philippi and Ephesus, just to name a few. But at this moment, he's heading to Jerusalem. I don't know about you, but for me, I like to think that Jerusalem would probably be more open, to be more friendly to what the Apostle Paul is about to share with them. After all, these are God's people. The Jewish people are God's chosen people, and they have everything that we refer to as the Old Testament. So you'd like to think they're going to be open to what Paul is going to share with them. But I would argue that Jerusalem is where Paul is going to encounter his staunchest uh, opposition to date. You know how people say things? They say things that are kind of generalities like, well, I'm stubborn because I'm Scottish. I can say that because I'm Scottish, okay? And that's something that Scottish people say. If it's true or not, I don't know. Or maybe somebody, I have friends that say, well, I argue because I'm Italian. I yell because I'm Hispanic. That's what people say. There's stereotypes. That sometimes there's an ounce of truth to that. Sometimes there's not. But we're talking about the Jewish people. Holy cow. Okay, the Jewish people have centuries and centuries of historical historical documentation to prove they are the world heavyweight champs when it comes to these titles. Now, now I'm not being racist. I have I have several Jewish friends, and if you were to ask them, "Hey, tell me about your people," they say, "Well, we're stubborn and we argue and we yell. That's who we are." So, if you were to call a Jew those things, it's almost like a compliment to them. They they, they wear it like a badge of honor. Okay, these people. 
they don't take very kindly to someone coming in and saying, well, hey, the law has become your idol. That's what the Apostle Paul is going to tell them. This law given by God, you are lifting it up and you are worshiping the law rather than the lawgiver. You know, having an idol is actually breaking the law. And so if keeping the law is your idol, that means that two worlds are about to collide. And so the person that that is delivering this news is not going to be embraced very favorably. That's Paul and the Jewish leaders. And that's the reason why Paul's friends have been telling him, they're saying, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. And I think it's with tears in Paul's eyes that he tells his friends, I have to go. Paul is certain that God wants him to go to Jerusalem. He's also going to give a financial gift that the Gentile churches have taken up for Jerusalem. But this is going to be his chance to preach the gospel one last time to the Jewish unbelievers there. So with that, let's read in Acts, beginning in verse 21, verse... 15. It says, After these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing with us the house of Nison of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. And to all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God has done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul has finally made it. He's in Jerusalem. But this is the last time Paul will see this city. And we are going to read, we are going to witness the full rejection of the gospel by God's people. The Jewish people. And I have to notice and mention that just as it happened to Jesus, it's going to happen to Paul. But did you notice who Paul met with? He met with James. Okay, James, this is the half-brother of Jesus. He is the de facto leader of the church at Jerusalem. And there are some say, well, no, this is James, the brother of the apostle John. But that's impossible. Because that James was killed by Herod Agrippa back in Acts chapter 12. And I hope you notice who it's not. It's not Peter. Because there's some that suggest, well, Peter was the first pope because he was the first leader of the church in Jerusalem. But when you read the Bible, that's not what the Bible says. If we were to go back to Acts chapter 15, we'd read it was James that was in charge. That, that Pastor James is calling the shots. He, he is the one that's leading First Baptist Jerusalem. Not really, the, that's not the real church's real name. I just like to call it that because it sets certain people's heads on fire, but this is James, Jesus' brother. He's the one that's greeting Paul. Look what he says in verse number 20. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said, you see, brothers, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed and are zealous for the law. This, this, this is what James is saying. James is letting Paul know that there's thousands of believers through Paul's hard work, through all the missions, all that Paul is doing. There's so many Jews that have heard the gospel. And, I mean, think about how wild this is. They don't have something like the book of Galatians. They don't have that. They don't have the book of Hebrews. They don't have Romans to really unpack and and really uh, explain everything that the the Jewish traditions were really pointing to. They don't have that. But yet they're still, they're believers. So they're Messianic Jews, but they're still really bent on Judaism. Okay, They're very, very sensitive to law. 
Luke tells us they are zealous for the law. Let's keep reading in verse 21. It says, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may be able to shave their heads. And thus all will know that there is nothing in what has been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent letters with their judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went to the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and and the offering presented for each one of them. So this is what James is saying. He's saying, hey, Paul, there's a lot of of Jews that have come to faith through all your hard work, but at the same time, your popularity with the Jewish people is at an all-time low. Okay, And they, they don't really like you because they don't understand what you're teaching. If we were to back up a few chapters and go to Acts chapter 15, there's what we called the grace debate. And the grace debate was, do you have to become a Jew in order to become saved? Do you have to get circumcised in order to become a Christian? And the answer is no. That was the, the, the debate was settled in Acts chapter 15. And they went on to say, hey, we're going to ask Gentiles to do four things. Okay, and those four things were to stay away from idols, to, to, to stay away from blood, nothing that's been strangled, and from, to abstain, abstain from sexual immorality. I like to sum it up this way. This is an easy way to think of it. Don't do the things that are going to hurt your Christian life. You know, once Paul said it this way, he said, I can do all things, but not all things are helpful. So I don't do the things that are hurtful. That's what Paul says. Don't do the things that hurt your Christian life. And we're given a list of what they are. And sometimes in counseling, people come to me as their pastor and say, Pastor John, this is what I'm doing. There was an old skit by Bob Newhart. If you know the skit, and it's kind of the advice I give, just stop it. That thing you're doing, don't do that. Do something else. That's what James in the, the council said. Don't do those things that hurt your Christian life. Well, James tells Paul, he says, hey, there's these four guys, and I want you to go through these rituals with them. And we want you to go because it's going to be helpful to these guys. It's also going to let all the people know that these lies that have been told about you are false. Now, think about it. Paul could have said, no way. I'm not going to do it. In fact, it does bother certain theologians that say, well, that's what Paul should have said. Paul should have refused to go through these rituals. Because Paul's a guy that says, you don't have to make sacrifices anymore. You don't need to do all the sacrifices in order to be saved or sanctified. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, okay, I'll I'll go away with it. I'll go through with it. Paul, in a sense, kind of submits himself to James. You know why I think he did it? I think he did it one reason to just go the second mile. Okay? He knows he doesn't have to do this. He knows that, that these, uh, these, this vow that he's going to help these men in, that it doesn't merit salvation. But he's going to do it to one to end the drama that's, that's being talked about him. And what I think we're seeing here, that Paul's not a man that's going against the will of God. 
I think what Paul is doing is he's living out, in a sense, part of his philosophical statement. Okay? Let's read Paul's philosophical statement. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became those who are under the law, though not being law, under, uh, uh, myself under law. That, that's these four guys. Paul's saying, this is what I'm doing so these guys could come to know Christ, that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside the law, that's the Gentiles, I became as those outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are outside the law. Paul's saying, hey, I'm doing whatever it takes to win those who don't know Jesus. Now, I think at the same time, Paul's saying, it's not like I go to the bar and get drunk so I can win the drunks, because that's sinful. Paul wouldn't do that. But look at verse 22. It says, to the weak, I became the weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessing. So here's in a sense what Paul's doing. There's four guys and they've taken this vow. And Paul's just helping them in the vow. And also there's some cost associated with this vow that James is asking him to partake apart, part, take part in. And, and Paul's saying, you know what, I'm going I'm to pay for it. I'm going to foot the bill. Now, most people argue, well, this must have been a Nazarite vow. And if you want to read with that in, you can turn to Numbers chapter 6 and read about it. But Paul's already done this back in Acts chapter 18. Part of the, the vow, it includes animal sacrifices. That's the cost. And Paul is paying for it. Even though the, the animal sacrifices ended with Jesus because it was all to point to Jesus. But so these sacrifices that Paul's going to participate in is just a simple memorial, okay? Because it doesn't remove sin. In fact, all animal sacrifices, none of it removes sin. It just looked to the coming Savior. All the, the sacrifices that happened in the Old Testament, it pointed to the Savior that was to come. So now these animal sacrifices are pointing back at the Savior that's already died on the cross for our sins, you know, a couple weeks ago, I already mentioned this, but I'm going to mention it here again, that there is a coming period that we call the millennial kingdom. It's a thousand-year reign where Jesus is going to come and he's going to rule and reign physically from earth. There's a couple really big things that are going to happen first. One, the rapture, and I'm, I'm ready for that one. I, I, yeah, amen. How about tonight? I think tonight would be a good time, but if it doesn't happen tonight, it's because Jesus' plan is better than my plan. But, and then it's going to be seven years of absolute hell on earth. It's going to be horrible. And then our Savior is going to come back again, and he's going to right all the wrongs. And there's going to be a kingdom set up here on earth for a thousand years. And during that time, there's going to be animal sacrifices. And you're thinking, why? The answer is, they're going to point back. It's all going to point back at what, what Jesus did for us on the cross. And I think that's kind of what Paul is doing here. When I was in Israel, I was in Israel in 2018. And if you're ever there, one of the must-go places is the Jordan River. And if you've never been there, I'm going to burst your bubble. It's kind of disappointing because it looks a lot like the Bighorn River right here. You're like, that's the Jordan River? Yeah, it's brown and not very pretty. But anyways, that's where Jesus was baptized. Well, if you're ever there, it's kind of a big deal to get baptized in the same place that, that Jesus was baptized. Well, when I was there, there were some people that were in our, in our party that they wanted to get baptized. Even though they've already been baptized, they're like, I kind of want to do it in the same place that Jesus did. So what do you do? 
We have some pretty strong beliefs on baptism, that it's supposed to be a one-time ordinance that represents your, your faith in Jesus Christ. But then again, we're here on the other side of the world. So my pastor at that time, who was very wise, said, you know what? We're going to go ahead and baptize them to represent, do a memorial for the, their first baptism. And I think that's Paul's wisdom here. And I really appreciate the Apostle Paul, because Paul is able to discern in the essentials and the non-essentials. Okay? Paul knew this sacrifice. He knew that there was nothing salvific in a sacrifice. He knew that it, it's not essential for your growth in Christ. But yet, he's still willing to be flexible. In essential doctrine, Paul was firm. In the non-negotiables, Paul would not negotiate. And I think that's how we ought to live our lives as Christians. There are some non-essential to our Christian faith. The deity of Christ, not going to budge on that one. The means of salvation, nope, not going to give an inch. The, the virgin birth, there, there, there's quite a few. We're not going to bend or give in on essential doctrine. But on secondary issues, we can be flexible. That's what the Apostle Paul does. Look in verse 27. It says, when the seventh day was almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help this man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place, don't forget that, this place is in the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has deviled this holy place. And so when Paul gets to Jerusalem, there's these people that have been bad-mouthing him. They've been spreading lies. And they've been saying, hey, Paul forbids people to, for, to circumcise their kids. And that's a lie. Paul never said that. Paul would have said, hey, to the Gentiles, if you want to circumcise your, yourself, if you want to circumcise your kids, go ahead. You don't have to, but if you want to, go ahead. And the truth is, Paul would have said the same thing to the Jews. All those rituals, all the festivals, they've all been completed and fulfilled in Christ. But if you want to do them, fine. But now Paul's in the temple. And somebody sees Paul. And they suppose that Paul brought a Gentile into the temple. Here's the deal. Big, big no-no to a Jew. Okay, No Gentiles in the temple ever. And you're thinking, why would they think that? Look in verse 29. It says, for they had previously in Trophimus, Trophimus the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul, and they dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And I think they shut the gates because they don't want to see anybody to see what's about to happen to Paul. If today we were standing on the Mount of Olives and we were to look to the west, we could see the temple. In fact, today it is very similar to what it was 2,000 years ago, except the temple's gone. Today there's actually two Muslim mosques that stand where the temple once was. But back in the day, the, 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 the center fit fixture was this giant temple that was built by Herod the Great. And immediately surrounding that temple is a courtyard. It's called the Courtyard of Israel or the courtyard of the priest, and only Jewish men were allowed to go in there. And outside of that courtyard is another courtyard. It's called the courtyard of the treasury, or also the courtyard of the women. Guess who could go there? Jewish women. 
Jewish women could go into that courtyard, but not into the courtyard of the priest. Then outside of that is yet a third courtyard, and this is the biggest courtyard of all. And that's the courtyard of the Gentiles. Now, anybody could go there. Trophimus, if you and I were there, if the, it was still there at all, we could go there today, but no closer. Because if you go any closer, there was a four, three to four high wall that separated the court of the Gentiles to the court of the women. Now, there was an inscription written on that wall. It's not found in our Bibles. But there was a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, and he said that the, the sign said this, quote, no man of another nation is to enter within this wall around the temple. And whoever is caught will have himself to blame for the penalty of death that follows. So if you're a non-Jew caught inside that wall, you're a dead man. When I was in Israel, and, and there's another place that, that you have to go if you're ever there, and that is the Wailing Wall. Because Jews today, they believe that that is as close to the Old Testament temple as you can get. So they also think that's as close as God that you can get. And so if we were looking at it, let's say we're, we're looking this way. The, the left-hand side is for the men, and the right-hand side is for the women. And there's two entrances. And guess what? Women may want to use one entrance, and men on the other. And never shall the two shall cross. Well, when I was there... I witnessed with my own eyes. I saw a woman try to use the men's entrance. And the rabbinic Jews that were there that day, they lost their minds. And they were going to grab her. And I don't know what they were about to do to her. But fortunately for her, there was essentially police to grab her and drag her away before they got out of control. And I'm telling you this because the Jews take this very, very seriously. Well, at this moment, in Acts 21, Paul's beyond that wall, Right? And they had seen Trophimus, the Ephesian. He's a Gentile with Paul earlier. So now the Jews, they assume that Paul has brought a Gentile past that wall. We know, all know what assuming does, right? Do you remember the lies that they, they told about Paul? And so they grab Paul, and at this moment they're going to kill him. You know, the, the Jews have this over-the-top reverence for their holy place. But the truth is, so, is, so do a lot of people. Do you remember if we backed up in the book of Acts just a few chapters when Paul was in Ephesus, the Ephesian people were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. People really do this all the time with whatever they consider their holy place. Sometimes Christians do the same thing with the church building. But this is not our temple. Christians do not go to a temple because God does not, does not reside in a temple. Today... The Holy Spirit resides in believers. And so if you are a believer, you are the temple of God. So at this moment, they grab Paul and they're about to stone him because they're saying he's breaking the law. And they shut the temple gates. They also want to make sure that nobody gets in. Look what happens, verse 31. And they were seeking to kill him. And came, uh, uh, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all of Jerusalem was, uh, was in a confusion. And he once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. It's a good thing the cops show up, at least for Paul. Stop beating him because the cops are here. And the tribune came up and they arrested him and ordered, to, ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and, and what he had done. Some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. As he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. 
He ordered, um, he ordered him to be, be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob was following, crying out, away with him. The tribune of the cohort, this is a man by the name of Claudius Lystra. We know that's his name because later on he's going to sign a letter and he's going to say this is his name. Well, Claudius Lystra, he's in the Antonio Fortress. This is the same place that Pontius Pilate was at when they brought Jesus. And this is the place that, 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 that there's, you know, the Jews have the temple police to try to keep order in the temple, but Rome wants to make extra certain that, that a riot never breaks out. And so in the Antonio Fortress, there's the 10th Legion of Rome. And so Claudius Lystra, he comes out of the Antonio Fortress, and he grabs Paul before the Jews have a chance to kill him, and he binds him in two chains. And pretty much from this point on, Paul will spend the rest of his life bound in chains, more or less. And, and the soldiers have to, I kind of picture it, have to pick Paul up like a piece of furniture and carry him out of there because the Jews are going to tear him to shreds. And I think it's amazing how history repeats itself. Because Jesus went to Jerusalem. When his friends said, don't go to Jerusalem, Jesus, and Jesus said, I have to go to Jerusalem. And he was taken to the exact same place. And it was there that the people cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And now here's the Apostle Paul. He's telling them about Jesus. And they have the same reaction, away with him. Keep reading verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, this is Claudius Lystra, may I, have something, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men uh, 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 of the assassins out into the wilderness? Needs to be some expl- explanation there because that's kind of some tough verses. That Jewish historian that I spoke of earlier, Josephus, he wrote about this terrorist. And there was this terrorist three years earlier who brought a bunch of guys and they were going to assassinate some of the officials in Jerusalem. But they were captured and they were taken to the Mount of Olives to be executed. Some of them were executed, but their leader, this Egyptian, got away. So in these verses, Claudius Lystra is saying, Hey, Paul, aren't you that Egyptian guy? We've been looking for you for three years. Verse 39. And Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. I have to think Claudius was, was pretty surprised. Like, wait a minute, I thought you were Egyptian. Here you are speaking perfect Greek. So he lets Paul speak, verse 40. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when the, the great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Do you remember there was a day when Paul wrote, he wrote the church at Rome, and he said, I wish I myself could be a curse from Jesus if my people would come to know Christ. Paul said, I would go to hell for all eternity if the Jewish people would come to know Jesus as their Savior. He said that in Romans chapter 9. What this moment, this is his chance. This is what Paul has been dreaming about for years and years. This is what Paul's thinking. I'm going to preach the gospel and the Jewish people are going to get saved, right? The Jews are going to accept Jesus as the Messiah they've been waiting for for thousands and thousands of years. 
Now we are here in Acts 22. Paul's about to do what he's been dreaming of doing his entire life. Now I think there's a weird chapter break because there is one and I don't think there should be one, but what I think doesn't really matter. But what is really crazy to me is not so much what Paul's about to say as as much what he doesn't say. Because I'm here, spoiler alert, here's what Paul's not going to say or this is what Paul's not going to do. He's not going to walk them through the Old Testament. Paul's not going to go to Isaiah chapter 53 and and say, this is who who Isaiah was writing about, the the suffering servant is Jesus. That's not what Paul's about to do. Neither is Paul going to go to Daniel chapter 7 and say, Daniel was speaking of Jesus when he saw the heavens open and behold a white horse and the son of man. That's Jesus. That's not what Paul's not going to do. Paul's not going to go all brainiac on them and, and, and prove in the thousands of different ways how Jesus is God come in the flesh. And that's not what he does. And I have to ask, why? Why doesn't Paul do that? And here's what I think the answer is. Because Stephen already did it. If you remember in Acts chapter 7, there was a deacon named Stephen who walked his way all through the Old Testament and he proved how it all pointed to Jesus you remember that? Well, if you remember, there was also an up-and-coming young Pharisee in the crowd that day. His name was Saul of Tarsus. He was the man that held the coats while the other men got good wind-ups and they could throw rocks at Stephen's head. Paul was there. He heard it all. And I'm just guessing, this is pure speculation when I say this, but I have to wonder if some of the people that Paul's about to speak to, if they're not the same men that threw rocks at Stephen. So then, if that's true, what good would a repeat performance of of Stephen's message do? And so what Paul does is he takes a completely different approach. He gives his testimony. Paul's going to say something that is absolutely irrefutable. Because if you ever have a philosophical discussion with somebody, if you ever have a theological discussion with somebody, people can refute that. You said this, but what about that? But what nobody can refute is your testimony testimony okay it's inarguable because it's your testimony it happened to you now your testimony doesn't necessarily prove what you say to be true but it does prove that you believe what you say to be true and that's especially true if you're really living out what you say to be true that's the apostle paul look in verse 1 of chapter 22 brothers and fathers Hear the defense that I will now make to you. Let's stop right there for a second. Here's our first point this morning. Point number one. Every Christian has a testimony to share. The word defense that Paul uses there is the Greek word apologia. Apologia is where we get the, the, the word apologetics. And if you, I don't know if you've ever heard of apologetics, but apologetics don't mean saying you're sorry for believing what you believe in Christ. No, apologetics is a very clear, very logical presentation for the gospel. So here Paul is saying, here's my defense, here is my apologia. And Paul's about to deliver an apologetic message. He's going to begin with his testimony, and he's going he's to um, begin with his conduct before Christ. And then he's going to move to his conversion experience. And then he's going to end with how Christ has commissioned him now. Here's what he's doing. He's telling his story. So we need to know. I want you to know. That your testimony is powerful. So my encouragement to you, church. Learn how to use your testimony. 
And I'm going to encourage you to have a quick version. Have a, have a medium link version. Also have a longer version. Have that quick version you can tell in like 15 seconds. This is who I was and this is how Jesus saved me. Very quick. Also have a medium link version. How you could tell over coffee sometime. And then also have the long story. You know, warts and all. This is who I was before. This is how I got saved. And this is who I am now. This is what Jesus is doing in my life. But be able to share it. And there's some that say, well, I don't really have a testimony. Here's the deal. If you've been saved from hell to heaven, you have a testimony. Now, your testimony is not my testimony. My testimony is not your testimony. Your testimony is completely unique to you. Now, I pray that our kids have completely testimony, completely different testimony than mine. I pray that their testimony is like, I was a squeaky clean preacher's kid, and I heard the gospel, and I believed. I pray that's what theirs is. Now, it doesn't mean theirs is better or worse. I would argue that's better. Okay, that's a better testimony. But we need to have a testimony. We need to know it, and you need to be able to share it with others. You know, there's a little section in Revelation chapter 12 that said the believers overcame something. And part of what they overcame was because of their testimony. Keep reading verse 2. And when they had heard that he addressed them in the Hebrew language. So Paul was speaking Greek, and now he switches. He's speaking in Hebrew. They became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born of Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamel. Gamel was a pharisaical, he was a Pharisee, a leader of Pharisees. He was teaching. So he's really the who's who of Pharisees. And so if you're being taught under him, that's really saying something. I'm sure every Jewish mom would go, oh, my son was studying under Gamel. That's Paul. According to the strict manner of the, father, of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are to this day. I persecuted the way to death. The way, that's what they called Christians before there was no, denominations. There was no Baptists or Lutherans. They were just the way. Because Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So the early Christians were called the way. And I persecuted the way to death. Binding them and delivering to prison both men and women. It's not like Paul was saying, I'm, I was kind of bad. No, he's saying, I was killing people. Men and women. Paul had done it all. As the high priest and the whole council of the elders can bear me witness. For them I received letters to the brothers. And I journeyed towards Damascus. To take those who, who were there and bring them bound to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way... I drew near to Damascus. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with, with me saw a light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking. So there's been some 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 conflict here because there's so there's some that say well hey acts chapter 9 and acts chapter 22 they they don't match because there's some that say well there's those words heard but here in, in verse 22 it says they 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 didn't understand well if you were to turn to acts chapter 9 the the word heard that some of your bible translations use it's it means mumbling that the people that saw the bright light they kind of heard something. It was like, <laughs> so they didn't understand what God was saying, but they heard something. But so Acts chapter 9 and 22, they don't contradict each other in the least. Read verse 10. 
And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go to Damascus. And there you'll be told all that's appointed for you to do. Here's my second point for this morning. Point number two. Living a life of faith is taken one step at a time. Let me paraphrase in the new Pastor John translation what what Paul said. This is what Paul said in my mind. Lord, I'm yours. Whatever you want of me, do with me whatever you want, Lord. You're God, I'm not. My life is a blank check. Write that check and cash it however you see fit. And I want to say, that's what it looks like when you meet the real Savior. It's not this, oh, hey, thanks for getting me out of hell, God. Now I'm going to go back to my life. That's not the way it works. The first question out of Paul's mouth is, what do you want of me, Lord? And that's a good word to use, Lord. It means boss. It means the one who's in charge. He's saying, you're in charge, I'm not. Now, did you notice what the Lord didn't say? He didn't say, okay, Paul, here's the 30-year plan. Are you ready? First, you're going to go to Damascus, and then you're going to go to Saudi Arabia for three years. After that, you're going to go to Jerusalem. And then after that, you're going to go to Antioch, and you're going to plant a church. And then you're going to plant churches all over the world. You're going to go to Corinth and Athens and Ephesus and a bunch of other places too. Then it's going to be back to Jerusalem where some guys are going to kill you. And then you're going to be bound in chains. And, and by the way, you're going to write a lot of letters and we're going to put them in this one book they're going to call the Bible. And then you're going to die in a, in a dungeon in Rome. Jesus could have said that, right? But did you notice Jesus didn't say that? Why didn't he say that? Because here's what Jesus says. One step. Go to Damascus. Talk to a guy named Ananias. Then Paul could have said, well, what's Ananias going to say? Paul's going to say, or Jesus would have said, just go. And the same is true for me. And the same is true for you. That's what God says to us. Just take one step. I was saved October 19th, 2003. Now, if you would have told me on that day, hey, 18 years from now, you're going to have five kids, I'd say, oh, I thought I was going to have two, but five, okay. Then if you said, hey, three of those kids are going to come to your, into your world through, a, through adoption, it's going to be amazing. And oh, by the way, you're going to be a pastor in Worland, Wyoming. I would have laughed in your face. I'd say, you've got to show me what you're smoking, because that's never going to happen. But here it is, right? Because it's one step, at a, one step at a time for me. Just like the Apostle Paul. It's one step at a time for the Apostle Paul. And the same is true for you. That's how the Lord works. Take one step. Some of us just need to take a step. Just take the step. I don't know what your step is. Okay, Your step is not my step. My step is not your step. But all I know is that some of you need to take a step. For some of you, it could be baptism. If you profess Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then the first step is baptism. To go public with your faith, to tell the whole world, this is what Jesus did. He died and he rose again. For some of you, you need to take that step. Or maybe for some of you, the step is service. You come to a place like this and you consume all the time, but you never give back. Some of you, you need to serve. That that's, could be the next step for you. I don't know what your step is. But after all, we're supposed to be stepping. But then some of us, we don't step. We don't take a step because after all, It might not be the step we want to take. Maybe that step that God is asking you to do is going to be really hard. Who in the world said living for Jesus is going to be easy? The truth is it's not. 
You know, the, the John Burns that was saved for one day, he would have wrote a completely different story than what Jesus had in store. But that's why it's called a life of faith. And again, my plan's not your plan. Your plan's not my plan. But, but God's plan is that we would all walk in his plan. So take a step. Keep reading. Look in verse 11. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light... I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came to Damascus. At once, Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at once, that very hour, I received my sight and I saw him. And he said, The God of your fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Here's my third point for us this morning. Point number three. God uses people to reach people. You know, there's a pattern in the book of Acts. Hopefully you've seen it by now, but if you haven't figured this out, here's the pattern. God uses people to reach people. If we were to turn to Acts chapter 18, there was an Ethiopian eunuch that God wanted to save, so... God told a guy named Philip, hey, I want you to go to Gaza. He didn't give him the whole plan. He just said, go. That Ethiopian unit, he didn't get a bright light. He didn't get an audible voice from heaven. He got Philip to go. Uh, When there was a time when God wanted to save some people in Philippi, God told Paul, hey, Paul, go to Philippi. Go to Macedonia. Open your mouth. And you know what? Paul went. There was a time when God wanted to save a Roman centurion named Cornelius. Peter was told, hey, go, and he went. And this is a pattern that's repeated over and over and over again. So here's my question to you, church. Do you think God wants to save some people in Moreland, Wyoming? Amen? If you answered yes, how do you think he's going to want to do it? The truth is he wants me to go. He wants me to go and open my mouth. He wants you to go. He wants you to go and open your mouth. He wants all of us to go and do the same thing so more and more people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And think about this. If you've never done that, today could be the greatest day of your life. You could be sitting at, at, at lunch across from somebody and go, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. And right there and right then, God could work through you and save that person. And that's what we're supposed to be doing here. And that is amazing. Today could be the greatest day of your life if you open your mouth and do it. Verse 15. For you will be a witness of him to everyone of what have been seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins. Call on his name. And when I returned to Jerusalem and I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, make haste. Get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. I said, Lord, they themselves know in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up unto this word... They listened to him. Then they raised their voice and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. 
So Paul is giving this testimony, and the guys are listening to him, and he's telling them, this is what Jesus did, this is who I was, and this is how Jesus changed me. And they're listening intently. They're hanging on to his every word until one word. There was one word that changed it. And did you catch the word? The word was Gentiles. Paul said the Lord God sent him to the Gentiles, and these guys lost their mind. And they said, Paul's not even fit to live. You're thinking, what? That one word that's not even a cuss word. He is in church. But the word Gentile isn't a cuss word. But to the guys listening to Paul, it kind of is. Did you know that the staunch Jews at that time, the very devout religious Jews, they taught the only reason that God made Gentiles was to fan the the flames of hell even hotter. Paul said, hey, God is sending me directly to the Gentiles. And so the reason they're upset is not exactly from that word itself, but this is what Paul is saying. The Gentiles and the Jews are on even footing, and they lost their mind. Look what happens next. Look in verse 23. And they were shouting, and they were throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. They, they're losing it right there in the temple. And the temple uh, uh, and the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they're shouting against him like this. Do you remember the flogging? Jesus was flogged just before the crucifixion. A flogging involves a short metal or wooden dowel, about yay long, and then there's nine straps of leather that come off that dowel. At the end of the, the, the leather straps are either bone or glass and most likely metal. I think of like fishing hooks. And a lictor, would, would, they would stretch a man out so he, he couldn't move, and then they would lacerate his back with at least 39 lashings. And it would expose man's, men's bones and muscles and sometimes their internal organs. Usually victims died from the flogging in itself. And if they didn't die, they were crippled or maybe they bled to death later. That's what Jesus went through before the crucifixion. Verse 25. But when he had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, But I am citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And immediately the tribune was also afraid, for they realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, that he, and, and he had been, they bound him. Verse 30. But the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before him. If you don't know this, to claim to be a Roman citizen, if it's found to be a lie, death penalty. At this moment, Paul is laying it all on the line. There's absolutely no turning back for the Apostle Paul. And so what we're going to see here in a few weeks, Lord willing, Paul's going to face the Sanhedrin. Along with the high priest, Annas is going to be there. This is the same council that Jesus faced. History's repeating itself again. That brings me to my fourth and final point. We're going to end, close this service on this point. Point number four. A life 
that is lived to its fullest is lived for Jesus. That's what we see in the Apostle Paul's life. We see it right in the moment from he gets saved all through his life right up until the moment he dies. Paul lived his life for Jesus. And you know what? I think everybody, everybody wants to live for something greater than themselves. Everybody wants to be a part of something greater than just themselves. Well, there's nothing greater than God. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the God-man that came and he died. Why would God die? The truth is because you and I were sinners. The Bible says, for all have sinned. But we've all sinned and we've separated ourselves from, from God because of what we've done and what the, the good things we haven't done. That's called sin. And the wage of sin is death. What we earn for being sinners, hell. But that's not what God wanted. So God roped himself in humanity, and he came in the most humble way. He came as a baby, born to this poor peasant couple that couldn't even afford a room for the, the creator God to come into to the world. That's how God came. And then he lived this absolutely perfect life. He lived the life that we were incapable of living, and he died the death that we should have died. Why? To pay our sin debt. Because every single one of us has accrued a debt of sin that we're incapable of paying. That's why God came. He paid for the things that I've done. He paid for the things you've done. The Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If you've never called on Jesus to save you, I would beg you. I'd plead with you. If I could do it for you, I would do it for you. But I can't. It has to be you. Every individual has to make a conscious decision to give your life to Christ. So if you've never called in the name of the Lord to, to save you, I beg you to do that now. To say something along the lines of, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. Save me, Lord Jesus. I pray this in your holy, precious name. Amen.